So uh, this is the book that I wrote that just came out and it focuses on the soul music heritage of the state of Florida where I teach based on my realization when I moved down there from New York to begin teaching as a professor that a lot of the great soul artists I grew up listening to in New York had Florida roots. And I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, but I didn't even know that Ray Charles was from Florida. I thought because he sang a song called Georgia on my mind that he was from Georgia, but he's not. Um, so he grew up in Florida, went blind in Florida, became a musician, learned how to read music in Braille in Florida, and became a professional there. Um, there's some other musicians here who I'll show you who are very well known in the soul canon who turned out to have Florida. So my argument is people think about Memphis when they think about soul music in this country, and rightly so, because of Stax Records and other great uh, performers who came out of Memphis. People think about Detroit and Motown. You guys are familiar with Motown at all? Yeah. Okay, okay, good. Uh, uh, people think about New Orleans, which is a great city for rhythm and blues, but nobody thinks about Florida, and neither did I until I moved down there. So that was the initial and the main thrust and the intent of the project, but as I worked on it, I saw again, and I, was, I realized even more fully the role that soul music played in the civil rights movement in this country how inextricably linked it was, what an important role it played, um, and I think a role that sometimes goes overlooked and it's not completely understood. So while a lot of my examples are from Florida, the same dynamic holds true. Um, so that's kind of what I'm gonna, gonna try to explain. Now, the Civil Rights Movement was a very musical movement overall. For one thing, it came out of the black church to a great extent in the South, and there's music in the black church. There's gospel music, and there was gospel music at almost every civil rights rally, including the ones that Dr. King held, um, which makes sense. Uh, at the same time in the 60s, which was a great era of upheaval, and the soul music era, for those of you who didn't live through it, is we're talking about the 60s and the 70s. There were protest songs, including by Bob Dylan, who protested against racial injustice, the Vietnam War, police brutality, uh, and other problems, many of which are still with us, and we'll get to that. However, the difference is between gospel and folk protest songs and soul is neither of those other genres crossed over. In other words, the white mainstream in America did not listen to black gospel, and the black mainstream in America did not listen to white protest and folk singers. They were in their own little silos, right? But soul crossed over. For the first time, black music became the music of America. And this is one of the most famous and earliest soul songs that did that, that was very, very popular among black Americans and white Americans. And there are actually two sales charts which shows you there's always been this segregation. Black music was black music, white music was white music. So Billboard magazine, which is kind of the Bible of the music business, keeps two charts, even to this day. R&B, 
and pop, or the hot 100. So, but beginning with this man, those two things started to look similar, and hits on the R&B charts began to also be hits on the white or pop mainstream music chart. It's been too hard living, but I'm afraid to die. Cause I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. Somebody keep telling me don't hang around. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change gonna come. So, it's a call for change. It was written after Sam Cooke and his band were denied entrance to a motel in Louisiana, in the Deep South. Um, this line here, I go to the movies downtown and they tell me don't hang around, is a direct reference to segregation. Uh, so what soul music was able to do that those other genres weren't, I think is twofold. One, black America embraced this music and they were inspired by this music and the lyrics, including by what you just saw in the struggle for equality. Does anybody know who this is? Aretha Franklin, the queen of soul, okay? And that's Dr. King. So there you just see the way she performed at many of his rallies. Um, so that's one dynamic. But here's the other one that I think is very important. This crossover, when white America, and I'm talking mostly about white young America, you know, you people are the agents of change. That's how it happens. Young people want change and then old people get you know, get a clue, and they follow. And that's what happened in this case. So white America embraced black music, and we think in a kind of a subliminal way, it helped advance integration, it helped make black Americans more visible, more admirable, um, gave them something more like equal, and it's sometimes star stature. Uh, so I think, you know, art is a very powerful thing. The laws change, and we'll get to that, but what this art can do is change hearts and minds, as the saying goes, right? So one reason you could tell is when there are repressive regimes, and I'm thinking about other countries for now, the first thing they do is they try to shut down the press, right? Because they don't want us to tell the truth about what they're doing. And the second thing they do is they go after the artists, right? Because they know art reaches people in an ineffable, very powerful way that they don't want. And if you think about it, for example, in Nazi Germany, one of the things they did was declare everything that didn't glorify the Third Reich degenerate art, and they banned it, right? So I think that's the way this worked. Um, 
just to make sure we know what we're talking about. Here's a definition by one very well-known music expert. That would be me. Uh, here's the way I define it in my book. Gospel-derived vocals, remember it came out of the black church, with the musical underpinnings, so the vocals is the same, and soul is very much a sung form, just like gospel is, right? If you think about gospel music, you're not thinking about the bass player, right? You're thinking about someone singing with a lot of passion, with a lot of emotion, a lot of feeling, right? So that's what we have in soul, uh, except that the subject of soul often is romance, and in some cases is civil rights. Uh, whereas in the church, the subject is glory, right? And so blues and jazz music, or chord changes or progressions with this kind of singing over it. So another definition somewhat similar by a woman who taught me at Columbia Journalism School back in the day, a fusion of blues and jazz and gospel. Uh, here's one of the gentlemen I interviewed for my book. He's a chapter. The book is a series of 20 profiles of singers, musicians, and producers who made soul music in Florida. And I basically drove all over the state of Florida for five years, interviewing everybody I could find and who would agree to be interviewed. Uh, trying to getting their pictures taken in some cases, digging around in archives to find archival pictures in other cases. But this gentleman was a little easier to find because he lives in my hometown now at Tampa where I teach. And back in the 1940s, he worked with Ray Charles when Ray Charles was in Tampa. So, but I went to his house here to speak with him and in the living room, there's a picture of him in his military uniform. So I asked him about it, and he served in the Korean War, it turns out, when the military had just been integrated. This is in the early 1950s. And he said, half the time we were getting in fistfights with the white crackers who didn't want us to be in the military, not fighting the Chinese, as we were supposed to be doing in the Korean War. Then he comes home. He's in his uniform. He's got his big duffel bag. He gets, on, he gets off the train in Tampa. And he gets on the bus to go to the house, and it's a crowded bus, so he sits up front, and they tell him, you have to go sit in the back. And this is a guy who's just been risking his life for this country, getting shot at, and they're telling him, you can't sit up here with the white people. So it just, it, it's hard to imagine, I don't think, if you lived through those times. In my lifetime, people could not eat in the same restaurants, stay in the same hotels, use the same gas station. You know, this is what segregation meant. Uh, so, you may know if you're studying social justice that the laws changed and they banned segregation in these different areas, right? But in the Deep South, where I now live, they just ignored it. It was not enforced. De facto segregation is what it's called, right? Instead of legal segregation, it's segregation in fact. Uh, so this did not change the lives of many, many African-American people in this country because these laws were defied deliberately. Um, so, for example, right, right around the time 
that change is going to come is released by Sam Cooke. This is what happens and how the civil rights struggle plays out in my neck of the woods, my adopted neck of the woods, Florida. Dr. King and his followers trying to integrate a motel. He's arrested, thrown in jail. Can't set foot in this motel because you're black, right? So then, while he's in jail, his followers decide to try to integrate the pool. They jump in the motel pool, and the motel owner dumps gallons of acid into the water to try to burn the people who are trying, God forbid, to swim together in a white pool. So this, this, is, what the, this is what the struggle was about. A lot of the struggle was not to get the laws changed, it was to get the laws enforced. So, after Sam Cooke, who began his career as a gospel singer in the Soul Stirrers, famous gospel group, this gentleman uh, also came out of the church and came up with another very famous song that still shows his gospel roots called People Get Ready. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage, you just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the dealers honing. Don't need no ticket, you just thank the Lord. So, you could see there's kind of a dual meaning here. It's about faith, and you could see it as the train to salvation, but it's also the train to freedom, right? Uh, and you could still hear kind of the gospel roots. Then, the tone or the sensibility of soul music starts to change a little bit. It gets a little further away from gospel, a little more assertive, a little more aggressive. The music becomes more up-tempo. Big horn sections are playing loud riffs. And, okay, Charlie, do we have, do we have a giveaway? None of the people over the age of 25 can answer this trivia question and win a free book. You're out. Who is this guy? Okay, you've got to get educated here. What are you teaching these people? All right, we'll come back to that. Yeah, yeah, but well, you're ineligible. Yeah, this is a guy named Otis Redding, wrote a song called Respect, and on the surface, He's demanding respect from a romantic partner, right? But I think the phenomenon of a big black man standing up there and shouting forcefully that he wants and needs and deserves respect has a subliminal effect. This is a new thing for white America to see, even though it is not directly aimed at them. And then Aretha Franklin takes over. She sings his song, and it becomes not just the number one song on the black music chart, but the number one song in the whole country. So white America and black America are listening to the song, and her say, I want and I need respect. And when she does that, she gets on the cover of Time magazine, which is a big deal, and not some place where black musicians often found themselves before civil rights.
So right around that time, there are riots, as they were described in the mainstream media, in black communities all over the country, including Watts in Los Angeles, for all I know, in Portland. Uh, and where I am, there are riots based on a very unfortunately familiar scenario in which white policemen shoot and kill an unarmed black man. And there's days of rioting. Uh, and buildings burn down, cars set on fire, this kind of thing. This is the aftermath in Detroit in which 43 people die. Um, so this is pretty serious unrest in this country, the likes of which you know, I haven't, you know, we haven't really seen since. Um, there's a kind of an unintended consequence in soul music explained here by songwriter Isaac Hayes. And this is when this term starts to really get currency. Before this, it wasn't soul music, it was rhythm and blues. Or before that, it was race records, meaning by black people, for black people. There wasn't any crossover. Um, but this term soul evolves to mean it's a term for blackness, but it's a term for blackness that is positive and means that blackness is worthy of respect and even an admirable thing. So this song was taken up by this group, Sam and Dave, also part of my research for my book. This guy's deceased, but I interviewed this guy, I interviewed this guy Sam Moore. Um, and what, he told me actually when, when this duo, when they sang together, they didn't sing harmony like people often do in choral groups, right? They sing the same parts at different pitches. He said, what we did was we echoed the call and response of the black church between the preacher and the congregation. So they played those two roles uh, when they were a duo singing act. And part of the thing is I, I came up the hard way. So here's them, and again, notice, the number two most popular song in the white market in the whole country, the number one most, song, uh, most popular song. So everyone in America is hearing this on their little teeny AM radio in the car, uh, which we used to have. So this is them playing to a very white audience. They had a lot of good energy. Uh, so what you have is a phenomenon of people shouting at the top of their voices and saying, I've got something that I'm proud of, uh, and it's innate in me, and it's my soul. Um, so 
this isn't my idea that soul music was an incredibly vital part of the civil rights movement. And uh, Dr. King spoke to this uh, at a convention of television and radio announcers in 1967, and here's what he told them. Tonight I want to say thank you, not just to these few, but to all of you who have given leadership to our people in thousands of unknown and unsung ways. We would certainly not have come so far without your support. And in a real sense, you have paved the way for social and political change by creating a powerful cultural bridge between black and white. School integration is much easier now that they share a common music, a common language, and enjoy the same dances. You introduced youth to that music and created the language of soul and promoted the dance which now sweeps across race, class, and nation. So, I think, as usual, he said it very well, right? Uh, so, after this point, soul begins to take on an even more assertive, empowered, aggressive stance, or some of it. Obviously, some soul music continues to just be songs about romance, love, and sex, like most pop music is, right? But James Brown, who was known as the godfather of soul, came out with this song in 1968 that is literally a statement of black empowerment, right? And if you weren't alive at that time, and you weren't, it's hard to understand how revolutionary this is, right? I mean, for a black man to just stand up there and, and, and just put this out in so many words uh, was basically unheard of. Uh, and as you see, or maybe you can't see, on my screen, oh no, here it is. So, in other words, it's the 10th most popular song in the country among white people, or in the mainstream chart, right? So you had this kind of funny phenomenon of white kids all over the country singing along to this song saying, say aloud, I'm black and I'm proud. Uh, and he, James Brown did a clever thing, I think. He brought in a class of school children into the recording studio, and you'll hear them basically recite or sing this along with them. And here's the lyrics. Thank you. 
You know, people who study this uh, have written that the most assertive lyrics in soul, generally speaking, were written and performed by performers in the North because it was at least to some extent a more liberal and forgiving environment. But James Brown was from the Deep South. You know, he didn't care. He was a very daring man with his own demons, but he was revolutionary, you know, in his time. Um, he continued to do songs with the same kinds of theme, including one called Super Bad and another one called Soul Power. You know, we need it. We got to have it. Here's just a little taste of one of them. Watch me. So, 1968, Dr. King's killed. There's a strange connection to soul music there. The Lorraine Motel was just down the street from Stax Records, the home of Sam and Dave and Otis Redding, uh, who you've seen. That's where they, all the visiting artists and people would stay. That was their hangout. Uh, he was killed there. That night, James Brown performed in the Boston Garden. They, they asked him to cancel it, thinking there would be uh, too much unrest and rioting, but he went on, he performed, he went out on the streets afterwards with the mayor, Kevin, the aptly named Kevin White, uh, and tried to keep the peace. And here, this is kind of a blurry bad photograph, but some kids came up on stage and started dancing with him, and the cops started rushing the kids, and James Brown told him like, hey, leave the kids alone, let them up on the stage, and defused that situation as well. Um, you know, uh, you just heard that cut super bad. You know, I have to remember, like, it's not just the message inherent in this soul. It's the music, right? I mean, if, if there wasn't, by some harmonic convergence, a generation of incredibly talented performers and writers and singers and musicians, I don't think soul would have the impact on, soul, on civilization, on society that it did, just because there was a few messages in this music. But somehow... There was a generation of genius people who could put it across in such a way that the music was so infectious and so appealing that the message went along with it. Um, right after Dr. King was killed, to continue the relationship between him and soul music in an unfortunate way, there was a memorial concert at the Garden in New York where Sam and Dave and Aretha and all these people performed and some white groups also like Sonny and Cher. Um, so, Curtis Mayfield continued to write uh, songs that were important to the movement, and he incorporated Martin Luther King's passing into this song, Moving On Up. The next kind of important protest singer, uh, you guys familiar with Marvin Gaye at all? Yes. yes? What do you know about him? What do you remember? Any of his music you can name? or? Uh, your parents had it, yeah, that makes sense, yeah. Anyway, he had a lot of success singing romantic songs. Um, you know, songs about love, 
and he did some very famous and successful duets with female singers on Motown, which is his label. But at a certain point in the upheaval of the 60s, he wanted to put that aside and do a more meaningful concept album that was all about literally what was going on in America at the time. Uh, and the people at Motown were like, didn't want any part of it because they had a lot of success appealing to white and black youth in America. They called themselves the sound of young America and they deliberately set out to cross racial lines. They didn't want any controversy, but he insisted and he had the clout as one of their biggest stars and he put out this record. Uh, you can even see from the imagery, it's not a happy romantic piece of work, right? Um, and the famous line is, you know, it, it makes me want to holler the way they do my life. This ain't living. Uh, inner city blues. Here's some of the lyrics. I had a great voice. This has been a lot of fun because it made me go back and get all my old music out and listen to it again. So, you know, this is a reference to like the space program that the United States government was so proud of. And he's saying, hey, spend some money on the people down here before you send people to the moon, which is what we were doing. Uh, this is a reference to the Vietnam War that was still going on at the time. And disproportionately, black and minority men, women didn't serve at the time, were being drafted and being set and being killed. Uh, so this is a reference to that. Then he also did something very surprising and kind of unusual in that he did a song that is deliberate, that is overtly about environmental awareness, uh, which was then seen, as it sometimes still is, as kind of a white concern. Um, and he did this song, which is, as you can see, incredibly popular across the board. Uh, and there's still things that he said then that actually, unfortunately, still sound very relevant today about poison in the wind, fish full of mercury, oil spilling on the oceans. And here's how it sounded. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, this was a time of segregation moving toward first legal and then actual integration. But there was integration in soul music. You know, it was primarily, it still is, it's an African-American art form. One of our original American products, like jazz and blues. Like, we made this. We invented soul music. It's ours. And this is one of the most successful groups. These were the house musicians or the studio band at Stax Records in Memphis. And they backed up Otis Redding and Sam and Dave, and they had hits on their own. Uh, and they were fully integrated, two white guys, two black guys. But when they first started performing and recording together, they couldn't perform in their own hometown of Memphis. It was illegal to have, have an interracial band perform uh, in that city. Uh, that changed. Um, but uh, let's see, anybody recognize this song? You might have heard it in a commercial recently. Uh, here, I'll, I'll give you a little, a little taste. It's pretty catchy. song was also covered in the 90s by En Vogue and salt and Peppa, and it actually had kind of a bigger hit than Linda Lindell did. So she recorded this on Stax. This is one of their subsidiaries vault in Memphis that we've been talking about. And this is her. It's a white lady who sang soul, had her success on the Chitlin circuit. Does anybody recognize that term? Do you know what that means? You know what Chitlins are? Anybody? Never had any chillins? Hmm? Hmm? It's a kind of soul food, right? So there was a term in the time of segregation, there was a long string of, in the South of black entertainment venues, some kind of fancy auditoriums and some kind of low down juke joints where black performers performed for exclusively black audience because things were segregated. But this lady, who grew up outside of Gainesville and is a chapter of my book, uh, grew up in the black church. She was the only white person there, singing gospel like every other soul singer. And she had, she, because she was really good, she went out on the circuit with a, a gentleman named Lavelle Kama, who I talked to in my book. And she was kind of a phenomenon and an unusual attraction on the circuit. Unfortunately, after her song came out, that was the biggest hit that she had. Dr. King got killed, and the racial dynamics in the South, and in some ways all over the country, got very volatile, very heated, and she started to get threats from both the Ku Klux Klan, who did not want her hanging around with those black guys and singing that black music, and from the black, black people in the South who called her and threatened her and saying, we don't need any white women at Stax, 
and they threatened her and her family, she told me, and she actually kind of ran away and retired from the music business, which is really sad because she's very talented. Uh, she came back maybe 20 years later and her career basically had fizzled out. So when I interviewed her for my book, she was still very sensitive about this and she wouldn't be interviewed in person, only over the phone, only after two people vouched for me and she would not have her picture taken and she, wouldn't, she asked me not to reveal where she lives because she's still scared. So that was kind of an unfortunate story that I uncovered in my research. Um, so probably the last great protest song and came in 1972 by this gentleman, uh, also a chapter of my book. Uh, I went down to Miami where he lives and asked him to, he had a keyboard in his living room and he, I asked him to tell me, explain like the bass line and the chord changes and everything to his song, which he did. Uh, and we've since done a couple of readings together where I talk and he plays his keyboards and sings, which unfortunately I couldn't bring him out here for you. Um, but anyway, you could, this is the, the Vietnam War is still going on, and obviously the civil rights, rights struggle is not entirely won. So this is a song called Why Can't We Live Together, since been covered by Joan Osborne, Sade, Carlos Santana, Stevie Winwood, many other people. Tell me why, tell me why, tell me why, mm, why can't we live together? Tell me why, tell me why, mm, why can't we live together? Everybody wants to live together, why can't we live together? So toward the end of the 70s, or maybe the mid-70s, soul music starts to lose steam and popularity. Uh, maybe there's message fatigue, uh, activism fatigue, but instead what we have is disco. A lot of drum machines, a lot of synthesizers, um, a lot of repetitive singing, no message except party, 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 get down, boogie down, and let's do cocaine, basically. That was the whole ethos of the disco era. Uh, and I think maybe in a reaction to or a fatigue after the social consciousness and the decade of, and a half of struggle, and this was kind of the epitome of it. There was a movie called Saturday Night Fever starring John Travolta. Uh, and it was all about staying out late and dancing and, and doing coke. Um, so there was no message to speak of. Um, but then, as things happen, and you may be aware of, things cycle around again. In the early days of hip hop, there's a lot of political and message having to do with racial justice, right? This protest about police brutality, 
about inequality. Um, here's you have NWA, one of the famous early groups. Ice Cube and Chuck D rapping about uh, people being killed by the police. Um, very powerful, and also, like soul music, it cycles around again in that it becomes the music of white and black young America, right? So the similar thing kind of repeats itself. Um, this is more, almost more overtly in your face and revolutionary, but to me it's kind of an, it, it, it it's very much resonates with what happened in the soul era. And then at the same time, there's obviously a lot of hip hop and rap, as you know, that is, does not have a political message. You know, it's about bling and other things. Um, but at the very beginning, this was very important. And I think we see it coming around today. You guys probably know more about Kendrick Lamar than I do, but did you see him at the Grammys when he did the opening thing? You know, there's a lot of like really powerful, I think, messaging going on from him, um, from others. Uh, I think Eminem has a new record with something similar. Uh, you know, Ice-T does this thing, it's kind of like a heavy metal rap thing with body count, and they're speaking to inequality in a sort of a, not just a racial uh, context. In other words, he's talking about inequality and class and includes poor white trash in the people who are being ignored and oppressed and saying, once we realize we're all on the same side, they can't split us up and prosper from the divide. So I I'm, I'm find this very encouraging. Um, we also have new and different voices that we didn't have back in the Soul era, right? I don't know, anybody heard this? Have you seen this video? It's pretty good. It's by th this woman is saying basically, I don't want to explain my hijab to you, okay? You know, stop asking me about what I'm wearing. And the, the, the reference is, if you want me to educate you, you gotta pay me. I'm not just gonna tell you about why I'm wearing this hijab and Islam. Right? Uh, there's a guy who calls himself Chicano Batman. So there's some kind of Latino revolutionary songwriting going on. Uh, this is one of the protest songs that I came across recently that is a very strong feminist message. And I must say, the soul, soul music, like the civil rights movement, was a male-dominated and in some ways a very sexist thing. Um, and I think uh, it had a lot of great things going for it, but that's, that's the truth about both of those things. The civil rights movement and in soul music, men called the shots. Um, and I think in today's music, to some extent, maybe we see that changing and improving. It's a woman's world. You can't grab me by the you-know-what, right? Um, also, some performers today are kind of cycling back and looking for inspiration uh, to the old school music. Uh, this is a young guy named Brian Owens. Anybody familiar with him? Nope. Well, he's from Ferguson, Missouri. So we need to put it in that context. And his father's a preacher. Uh, so again, he's coming out of the black church. And they have reprised in a video that went viral that Sam Cooke song that I started this whole presentation with. So let me give you a little taste. In a little 
So, for better or for worse, we're back where we started. Performer, soul music performers are calling out for positive change, right? So I'm encouraged by that. Um, I'm hoping we can see some progress in some of these things that need changing. Mm -hmm. 